0: Welcome to Broads and Books. I'm Amy. And I'm Erin. And this is a special Broads and Books bonus episode. Today on the Broads Talk Books With, we've got Sarah Weinman, author of The Real Lolita, Unspeakable Acts, and more. I have recommended three of her books. Three. Three? It's a, it's a rare, a very rare phenomenon. Rare. In the Broads and Books world. Rare. Yeah. But she's the best at she's crime best. writing. She's yeah. just the best, so. I will also tell our listeners... That you messaged me the morning of this interview and said in all all caps, "It's Sarah Weinman Day," <laughs> and then there was a technological problem, mm-hmm. which almost necessitated us rescheduling. And I saw your face crumple in real time, yeah. like you were holding on to this, like I this was. was this was going to be, this was what was going to make you get through your Monday.
1: I feel like that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I was very pumped. You were very I had pumped. been <laughs> really trying to downplay it, but I was pumped. I'd been pumped since we knew that it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So. And
0: this one, I sort of surprised you. I pitched her without telling you, and I think yeah. I'm glad I did, because I don't know if you would have been able to handle the couple days that it took for Sarah to get back and say yes.
1: No, I would have lost it. Yeah. I would have been like, we're the worst. This podcast has to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling the plug right now.
0: (laughs) But listen, you held your cool and we found Sarah Weinman to be impossibly cool. And not just because she called us the best kind of readers. I mean, spoiler alert. That's what she does. She says it. Yeah. Says that to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think you might have get or you might get that engraved on your gravestone.
1: Yeah, I added that into my afterlife wishes. (laughs) So we put all the books that Sarah mentions in the show notes so you can add them all to your TBR pile. And now here's our interview with Sarah
0: Weinman. Tell us a little bit about young Sarah. Uh, What was your your reading like? What were your favorite books? Were you reading true crime then? What kinds of stuff was happening when you were a young reader?
2: Well, I think my introduction to true crime was in a very strange way, because I have this memory of being about eight years old. And at that time, it was 1987 or thereabouts, so mid-80s. And I was a huge baseball fan. I was growing up in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And the closest team in proximity were either the Montreal Expos, which are no longer in existence, Mm -hmm. and the Toronto Blue Jays, which are, but I I was more of an Expos person than a blue jays fan even though i loved both but i had this book in the house and i think it's because my father was a baseball fan my brother was a baseball fan and it was the baseball encyclopedia and it was this big thick book just full of stats and facts and i know that bill james who is another sort of conduit between baseball and true crime his books were in the house and i was reading them as well (laughs) but i had this encyclopedia and I I just got it into my head to wonder. So if I'm looking up all this trivia about baseball players, I wonder how baseball players died. And <laughs> because apparently I was already pretty morbid <laughs> at, that, at that tender young age. Um, so I'm leafing through and I'm accumulating various gruesome facts. <laughs> and then at the dinner table, I decided to regale my family with them. And luckily my family was pretty chill about it considering but (laughs) (laughs) um, I was definitely not a quote neurotypical child I think Mm -hmm. is a good way of of phrasing it but uh, that wasn't the only type of book I was reading I mean some of the favorites that I still come back to that I loved in childhood were like the complete works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and not just the Anne of Green Gables books but also the Emily books and the Blue Castle and the the many, many short story collections that came out uh, decades after her death that were being published right around the time when I was reading them. So I've just, and I just, I love them for story. I love them for character. I couldn't have articulated that as a middle schooler, but certainly now looking back, I totally see why I love them and why they still hold up for me. And then what, I mean, I was reading just a lot of YA Mm -hmm. and um so if, if we really want to go back then sweet valley Twins, sweet valley high babysitters <laughs> club did uh, you get into
0: like christopher pike or any of the sort oh, of- i
2: read some of uh, those yeah mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and rl stein mm-hmm. before he did goosebumps because at the time goosebumps hadn't even begun yet so he yeah. was just doing well fear street was um christopher pike but um you know whatever um i think he did, he did like a haunted. Roller Coaster book I remember reading um, and yeah. So this is, in the, this was back in the day when I'd just be like, here are these authors with cool names. And then I don't, I don't think I've ever met Pike, but I have met Bob Stein on, on a couple of occasions, oh, wow. including very randomly backstage at the Brooklyn Academy of music. Cause it turned out we were both fans of this jazz pianist, Ethan Iverson, who is a huge crime fiction nerd. And if you go to a site, do the math. He's done these incredibly detailed essays on a variety of crime writers, including Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block and Ross Thomas, and I think most recently, Charles Williford. So yeah, random connections, but uh, this is the way it sometimes is in New York City. Anyway, all of which is to say my reading was a little more, maybe not traditional, but just it was definitely in sort of Middle school YA, I have to also mention like Norma, Norma Klein, who was a big, I feel like a big influence, even more so than say Judy Bloom. Mm-hmm. And then around fifteen, sixteen, I started reading mystery novels. Um, Mary Higgins Clark, Edna Buchanan, Walter Mosley were big ones. But it wasn't really until I got to college that I really started becoming a serious mystery reader.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm just picturing your parents' face when you <laughs> sat down. I'm still on that. Where you're oh like, no, you should you know be these baseball
1: players. <laughs> <at>? <laughs>
0: I don't know what that says about me
1: as a parent that I would be delighted if my kids came to the table and were like, this is how these people died. I'd be like, that is amazing. <laughs> tell me more. I feel like
2: I can relate to your parenting style. I, yeah. I, I, I'm not a parent, but I do wonder sometimes if I ever would, how I would <laughs> deal with a child who just was like, guess what I've just learned? And I, I hope I would have the same
1: grace that
0: my own parents did. I could definitely see oh, that, Erin. You'd be like, tell me about the murder. I let would be, be like, yeah.
1: I'm all in. let me give you some yeah, more books <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast um classics that we struggled with that and we've heard from people that maybe that impeded their reading life early on. They were presented with something maybe too soon or something that didn't speak to them. Do you remember a classic that you struggled with? I don't know about a classic, but I think it's and
2: it's a little tricky to talk about it in light of the recent news, but one of the things that i've been involved with over the last few months is this reading group of other women writers and we're all reading *Full of Broth*. and so oh. when I was in my teens and it sort of ties into how I first read Lolita as well because I sort of made this almost jarring shift from middle school middle grade books YA into reading books for adults and in high school in Canada the curriculum that we had was a little bit different than maybe curricula in, south of the border. So the book, I would be reading authors like Margaret Lawrence, and that's L-A-U-R-E-N-C, The Stone Angel, The Diviners, books like that, Margaret Atwood, Alice Monroe. And I remember we were doing some independent study work, and I just had a notion to read books that sounded controversial. So one of them was Lolita, and that's how... I ended up on eventually on the down the path that begat um, what became the real Alita a few years ago in the story mm-hmm. of Sally Horner. But soon afterwards, I started reading Philip Roth and I read Portnoy's Complaint at 16, which was very jarring and eye-opening. But it's like, no, I, I couldn't stop there. I had to start reading some of the then recent work. So this is the mid-1990s. So his two most recent novels at that point were Operation Shylock and Sabbath Theater. And having recently reread them for this book group, the first thing I thought was, what the hell was I thinking to try to read these books at 16? I had no conception of anything, let alone, and it's not even just content. It's just in terms of structure and form and what he was trying to do. And obviously the levels of internalized and externalized misogyny that, are very much present and I think need to be grappled with. But I had no facility for that at 16. And I don't think any 16 year old should. So (laughs) revisiting those books, um, I, I see them with very different eyes now. But obviously now I think it's there are these other more difficult conversations to be asked about transforming I mean, I keep coming back to this of just transforming life into art and blinkered perspectives and whose stories are worth telling and whose get kicked in the boot. So I think just with the larger question of classics, it's also, I wonder how much of the disservice teens have with certain books that they're, they're being exposed to them in such a way of you must read them, they are classics, as opposed to these books are pretty fun. And if you feel like you're sort of coming at them in a way that doesn't feel like homework, maybe they'll be more interesting to read. But also coming back to classics when you're older, that you may have read when you're you were younger, you do have a greater appreciation, or you can, but you can also be like, nah, these books were terrible. Why mm-hmm. were they being shoved down my throat or oh, wow, now I totally get why they were taught. And I wish I had been able to see that when I was in my teens, but how could I because I was
1: a teen?
0: Mm-hmm. That's such a great point that the even the way that they choose the classics for that age group is problematic. Like, you know, some of the things that we were reading at that age, yeah. A, we had no context for but also like, should we be reading this?
2: And And if we are reading this, why are there no contextualized discussions and some of that I think may have to do with the limitations of the teachers who are teaching them Mm -hmm. definitely I mean the best teachers are those who are learning alongside their students and certainly the best teachers I had were doing that as well Mm -hmm. and I feel like that's just that's just the larger context to look at all of this stuff absolutely
0: yeah well as you were reading um things that you enjoyed things that you were testing yourself with like those kinds of books were there particular authors and books that made you want to be a writer? I guess
2: the answer is reading crime fiction that was contemporary around the late 1990s, early aughts. And I didn't really think of myself as a writer for some time, even though looking back, like the first short story I ever had published was the long ago online magazine Plots with Guns. They published something I wrote in 2003, which if I look back, I just, you know, anything you write in your 20s is kind of inherently embarrassing. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I I take that in the the necessary stride that (laughs) I have to. But, you know, this goes back to what I was saying that when I went to, in Canada, we call it university. So when I went there, um, and I just, I was reading pretty widely, but the crime fiction that I really gravitated towards were writers like Laura Lippmann and S.J. Roseanne, Michael Connolly, Dennis Lehane, Harlan Coben, Sarah Paretsky, Sue Grafton, and so on and so forth. Just writers who were doing not only detective fiction, but it felt like they were writing about society in a way that made sense that it, it was trying to understand how the world worked. And I felt like the only way, That I could make sense of the world was through a crime fiction lens and then a little bit later there would be a true crime lens as well but really in terms of who made me want to be a writer it was just like it's just constantly reading Mm -hmm. and just the more books that I read and the more widely I read the more I could sort of take what seemed to be working what I did what didn't seem to fit my own sensibility just trial and error and the like. And a lot of it was also when I started my old blog, which had the fanciful title of (laughs) Confessions of an Idiosyncratic Mind for reasons that, frankly, I no longer fully remember. (laughs) But it was, again, 2003. And it was during that time when literary blogs were kind of a thing. Um, I mean, I really started it because I loved crime fiction and I didn't know of any other blog that covered the genre in the way that I wanted to see it covered, even though there are other blogs that covered various literary fiction or publishing types in a way. So how do I do something that's comparable to that? And it sort of coincided with me. So the other thing I should mention is that from fall of 01 to spring of 03, I was living in New York for the first time. I went to graduate school. I was eventually got a master's degree in forensic science which I guess also was a good training ground for being a writer, even though yeah. I was in deep yeah. denial at the time. <laughs> I, uh, I
1: really thought I was going to be a scientist and uh, that didn't quite work out. I would have never guessed that, but that it makes so much sense now after reading your books, that forensic yeah. science background has to have come in handy a few times.
2: I do feel like studying science and, stu- and particularly studying forensic science was good training ground for being a writer because I feel like it helped with seeing the bigger picture, with understanding why crime happens, and also the limitations of investigation, and why television shows generally are completely false mm. and have to compress the timeline and just everything that's going on. Um, so, yeah, it's there are a lot, a lot of different things in the primordial soup that made up my eventual career path, which I don't, I still don't fully think is a career path. I often described it as a series of happy accidents that led me towards where I am now. But of course, that's, that's both true and not true. I mean, I worked hard. I had a lot of advantages, obviously. And, um, and ultimately it came down to, I think I figured out how to do stuff in a way that nobody else was. And that's part and parcel of the way my brain works. Mm -hmm that I just think of things in a way that if other people do, they haven't necessarily articulated in the way that I've wanted.
1: Well, shifting a little bit now, thinking about your reading life now, how many books would you say are on your to-be-read pile? And are there a few you can share? (laughs) So
2: regrettably, the answer is a little bit more complicated now, ever since I took on the crime gig at the New York Times Book Review. And so that oh my, God, my first co-
0: inundated.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly the publicist emails have uh, increased a lot. Oh. <laughs> I rely pretty heavily on NetGalley. So the to mm. be read pile is large but it's all contained within my iPad. Hmm. So it doesn't at least feel like the shelves are teetering with galleys. <laughs> and that's also deli- deliberate because I, I want to have as wide a choice as possible in terms of determining which books I would like to consider for the column. But I also don't want to necessarily tip my hand. And I feel like with NetGalley, I can just be like, okay, publishers auto approve me and I'll just pick and choose what I want. That's sort of the ideal world. It doesn't always work out that way, but at least a number of publishers have gone along with this request and hopefully more will as well. But what it means is that it used to be on Twitter and Instagram that I could talk a little bit more freely about books that I was reading. But if they're for work, I really can't. Oh, so, I didn't even I think, think about secret that.
0: Secret reading light. Yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, it's not the first time I've had crime fiction columns before and I felt a similar thing where I just felt it wasn't right to talk about work reading. But what I do try to talk about are books that either are a little bit older or that have nothing to do with the genre. So for example, I think the last non- Non-workbook that I read was Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, which Ooh, I loved. Yeah, and is on my list. Yeah. yeah, it's infuriating, and uh, as one would expect. And the novel that I loved and that I just keep recommending to people, and in a different book group that I'm in, we just read it. Uh, was Detransition, Baby by Tori Peters, mm-hmm. the debut novel that came out in January. So that's a novel that I felt was Really eye opening, wonderfully written, and frankly, just a great comedy of manners. Just great, you know, really great characters and and realistic situations and and the feelings like all the feelings. It's like you don't have to be trans to relate to this. It's just Mm -hmm. these are, but obviously, if a column has run, I can talk about books
0: that I particularly liked and heartily recommend. So of among those maybe that you've reviewed somewhat recently, have there been really big surprises that stick out to you? Things that really knocked your socks off? Huh?
2: In the first column, I think the book that I was most affected by was You Up by Katie DiSabato. Ooh, I which... just started that today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, we're really in sync here. <laughs> Got it from the library.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just, I thought it was just a wonderful Examination of friendship and expectations and loss and grief in a way that felt really fresh and formally interesting to me. And also in that same column, I had so I love reviewing books where I'm entertained and I feel like I'm just having fun because we're in a we're still in a pandemic. Like we need fun in our reading life. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I've been really enjoying the sort of resurgence, maybe not resurgence, but just the transformation of the cozy mystery that it's a little more millennial and a little more diverse and so in the most recent column that ran um i really enjoyed dolly for aunties by Jessica q sutanto which published last week and it's just about this girl who has aunties and She's on this t- the worst date from hell that ends with him dead, and she's, they've got to figure out what to do with the body. And it's a, it's a, <laughs> this whole like weekend at Bernie's vibe with your family. It's, it, it was just oh. it was it was really fun. I could take, and that. I so enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Or Jonathan Ames is a man named Doll, which is the first in a, in a very idiosyncratic PI series, and I've read. Pretty much all of Ames's work, be it nonfiction or fiction or watched bored to death, and I love the fact that he's just finally admitted to himself: yes, I'm a crime writer, and I love this genre, and I want to stay in it. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like, yes, this is great. Do the do more of this. I, I, I'm along for the ride.
0: <laughs> well, well it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I forgot it was your turn, Erin. Go for oh. it. <laughs> I got so wrapped up. I was like, I just want to keep talking. Well, so you get a lot of books
1: sent to you, you're getting a lot of requests, but if you're gonna read something outside of work, what usually grabs your eye? Like how do you come across books?
2: Oh, that's always a good question. I think my favorite way is just getting the random unsolicited book that somehow magically speaks to me. Mm. And so that's completely unfair because for any publicist listening to that, that's a tall order. (laughs) So, just give me something magic that speaks to me. (laughs) But I think that's also why I love um, smaller presses like, say, New York Review of Books Classics. And, you know, full disclosure, they asked me to do an introduction for one of my favorite reissues uh, Basic Black with Pearls by Helen Weinsweig, a Canadian writer. And I love that book that I described as an interior feminist espionage novel.
0: Whoa. And it was first
2: published in 1981. (laughs) And then uh, Classics republished it a few months before The Real Alita came out. But they also published a book last year that was my favorite novel of 2020. I read it three times and frankly, I, I could reread it like all the time. It's called Divorcing by Susan Taubus. Mm-hmm. And it does have a tragic backstory because Taubus, who is a intellectual, she was married to a Jewish professor named Jacob Taubus they had children, they had what seemed like a grand romance and then it just completely disintegrated. And she both loosely fictionalized it, but also delved into her own family trauma of immigration and separation in this book. And it's very like fanciful and it kind of draws on Yiddish literature, but within a few weeks of publication, she drowned herself. And Susan Sontag, who was her best friend found the body off the coast of Long Island
0: Oh my God! so she
2: never wrote another novel and it just disappeared until New York Review of Books Classics re- reissued it and I just read this and I was like this book is made for me and I don't <laughs> fully understand it so I better read it again and then I read it again and I understood it a little bit more but I had to read it again <laughs> and that's wow. kind of where I'm at where things for things are further revealed on uh, reread mm-hmm. which is at uh, the older I get the platonic ideal for novels that the best ones really you don't just want to read them once you want to read them at different stages of your life Mm -hmm. and i Mm -hmm. hope to keep doing that but of course with all the books that there are out there to reread there's still so many more to read
0: yeah it's a tough decision with what you spend your time on exactly yeah yeah so uh for broads and Aaron here has recommended three of your books. You're the sole three, Pete. You are. You're it's the it's a three-peat. <laughs>
2: It's a true honor and a privilege. And, and I I I'm sort of staggered by that. So thank you.
0: <laughs> well, so we were wondering if there, you know, obviously different topics. There were the Real Lolita, Unspeakable Acts, Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives. And so I know it runs a gamut, but do you think there's any particular books or authors that inspire your true crime writing?
2: Yeah, I mean I I remember reading Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. And of oh. course I had been a longtime fan admirer and I'm glad to call him a friend now. But I read that book and it I I don't often have this reaction of just being like, damn it, how do you do that? Because most <laughs> of the time when I read books, I can see how writers do that. Yeah. And Either it's something that I would like to do, or something that I'm glad they did, but it's not really for me, or it's something I might not want to do at all. But in this case, I just was like, "Wow, I don't, I don't, I, w- I just want to know how you pulled that all off, and that's phenomenal." Um, I cannot wait for Pamela Koloff's upcoming book. Her long form journalism is truly the best in the crime space, just consistently. Mm-hmm. And really, just any writer who is in who's collected an unspeakable acts. I've probably been a longtime admirer, or if not, then I am excited to see what they do in the future. In addition, um, and then just just try to keep reading other wonderful crime novels. In addition, and luckily, I have the means and the wherewithal and and the perch to do that, which is again something I never, ever, ever want to take for granted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you review for the times, there is a, a tremendous amount of responsibility that comes with that, that gig.
0: You know, another well, question that occurred to me, sorry, Aaron, but yeah, you, no, when, when uh, you were talking that for a while, you were really focused on crime fiction and mm-hmm. potentially thinking about that kind of, where, where did the shift happen where you went, you know, obviously used to reading fiction, but where you focus your writing on nonfiction?
2: I think it started about 10 or so years ago, and that was just a function of, at that point, like 2010, 2011, I had done a lot of reviewing of crime novels, and I'd also, I think, started to reach the end of the line of my old blog, where I felt like I was just burning out. And in tandem, I had just taken on a job, which I would stay at through the end of 2018 as a publishing reporter for Publishers Marketplace. Mm. So that was a full-time job for a while. And that also was a job that entailed reading a lot of books and sort of being privy to what's coming up and forthcoming stuff. So I have like this available knowledge, not only of crime fiction and crime nonfiction, but also of how the publishing industry works. And so that all, everything, whatever what ends up happening is that everything kind of bleeds into everything else, And so even my writing life, it's not so much that it's I do one thing and then something else and then something else. It's sort of very fluid in how I approach things. And so really it was just I get restless and I want to challenge myself and I wanted to do some more reporting. And so I had done a cover story for the Philadelphia City Paper all the way back in 2007 on a still unsolved mystery uh, called colloquially known as the boy in the box and in 1957 this young boy in philadelphia who is still whose name is still not known his body was found in a box and he had clearly suffered malnutrition and abuse and it was a big mystery of who was this boy so i looked into it and i talked to various retired cops and went around and it was i look back and i think I'm glad I did this, but knowing what I know now, I would do I would write such a better story. Oh wow. <laughs> but it was I, I'm still super grateful that the editor in question, who was actually at the time the crime writer Dwayne Swzinski, he I emailed him one day and said, 50th anniversary of this is coming up. Can I write about it? And he's like, Oh yeah. So we figured it out. But it really wasn't until it wasn't for another few years when I wrote. A story of a different type of missing person's crime case and it was um, the story of a chess prodigy in New York City who had vanished in the late 1970s and his name was Peter Winston and he had been written up in various magazines as a little boy for being a boy genius and I found other connections culturally like when he was 12, he helped start an alternative school and all the kids banded together and there was a book. So I have this book and two of the kids were um, the sons of the poet, Adrienne Rich. So she contributed a couple of pieces to this book as a parent, It's, it's an amazing document, but unfortunately Peter suffered from schizophrenia and other mental health issues. And I believe that that contributed to why he disappeared. So it's a, it's a sad story, obviously, but it was also a way for me to figure out what was happening in this sort of subculture of chess. Mm -hmm. And it was the first long form story that I felt like super proud of. And that led to a piece that I wrote for the New York times magazine about a crime writer who had just won a private detective novel contest and was, and still is serving a life sentence for felony murder. And after that, that's when I started embarking on the long-form piece that became, eventually, became the Real Lolita. Oh
0: wow! wow. So that was a long period then of working yeah. on the Real Lolita. Yeah, and maybe because, even starting when you were sixteen and first read. <laughs> the Real yeah. Time.
2: I mean, stories tend to gestate a long time. I mean, the my next book, which will be out in February, um, I started work on that in basically as soon as the Hazlitt piece that was called The Real Alita Also, that was published in November of 2014. And I thought that this was going to be my next piece for Hazlitt. And for a number of reasons, I realized that this really was a book project, but I needed to write the book that became The Real Alita and edit the collection that became Women Crime Writers and eventually edit the collection that became Unspeakable Acts and in tandem work on this. So now it's getting ready and along its
0: path for publication. That's exciting. I'm going to say, Erin, you going to mark that in your calendar? Just Already, in. Did. Already done.
1: Uh, well, I'm sure I'm trying to keep my fan interaction really chill today. But <laughs> <laughs> what is one of your most memorable fan interactions? Oh, gosh.
2: <laughs> um, I think one that I cherish is the late lamented book festival. It was an outdoor festival called New Yorkers book country. And it was 2000. And I flew from Ottawa to New York. I hadn't moved to New York yet for the first time, let alone permanently, but I just wanted to go to this book festival. And I, it was all along fifth Avenue and there were stalls from various bookshops and other stores. So I remember visiting the mysterious bookshop stall and, meeting various authors there. And at the time there were four mystery bookshops in New York City, not just one. So I met other authors at the Black Orchid stall and Partners in Crimes. And so when I moved back for grad school, I also worked one day a week at Partners in Crime. So I was a bookseller. So that was really my first exposure to authors and the business. And Yeah. So I I got to meet all sorts, all all of my favorite crime writers. And now I feel lucky that I can count some of them as my friends. But I also remember at a different New York is book country. I think it was the first time I met Donald Westlake who he's been gone now for 13, almost 13 years. But to me, he's such a vivid presence in my mind because as Westlake, his work could be so funny when he was writing the Dortmunder novels or some of the standalones but as Richard Stark and the Parker novels they're so lean and they're so mean and I just I was so happy to meet him and you know he didn't really say much it was just like the typical fan interaction of me just being like (laughs) I love your book dancing Aztecs how did you do that and he just was like thank you thank you (laughs) but I think it's eventually I think I got a little bit jaded as a bookseller just because I would meet authors all the time or not so much jaded, but just these are writers and eventually some of them will become my friends. But I think it's really important to cherish those interactions. And when fans have met me, you know, I, I I'm, I'm so grateful that people are reading my work that I never want to take that for granted either because they could be reading anything else. There's so many books to choose from and they chose mine. And
0: that's, it's so important to just never forget that. What are true crime fans like? Do they come at you hard? Do they like, are there emails? Are there (laughs) cornering at Um, events?
2: I feel like if there are, I have not been privy to most of it. Perfect. When I was on tour for the real Alita, I met a number of true crime podcast fans Mm. and most of them were just really excited. It's like, Oh, you wrote the real Alita or, I'm so excited to read your book and when unspeakable acts came out obviously because of the pandemic no one was doing any touring but even just seeing what people were saying on bookstagram or people chiming in at virtual events and it's just it really it's all to me additive in a good way so Perfect. I think it's just that's, awesome. that's important yeah absolutely <laughs> you know, you
0: mentioned a couple but were there particular authors you know as you got further into your career that you really wanted to meet, and you got to meet them, and it was a good experience.
2: I mean, I way I mentioned that New York is book country, and I met mm-hmm. Laura Lippman, and you know we weren't friends then, but eventually we did become friends. And it's just like I'm—I've already read her forthcoming novel, Dream Girl, and I—I'm so excited for the world to read it. It's—I <laughs> just—I love what she was doing, and. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm proud of that book. Um, cool. Or, and, and, and this is where, you know, now reviewing crime fiction again for me feels like I've come full circle mm-hmm. because when I first had a regular book reviewing gig, it was at the Baltimore Sun. And I remember getting this box of galleys and I saw this yellow galley by an author I'd never heard of, but it had a great title called Die a Little. And I thought, ooh, this, this sounds like fun. It's like, it's feminist 50s noir. I want to read this. <laughs> and I read it and I loved it. And it was uh, Megan Abbott's first book. Oh. And I reviewed it. And ah. then as, as happened, we exchanged emails and eventually we met for a drink and we bonded over uh, unsolved true crime. Oh. And oh. so she's also just great. And the turnout's going to be out in August. And that's another one that i'm excited for people to read and obviously i won't be reviewing them for the times which is fine because i think they'll they'll get the reviews that they'll get the coverage that is like far lengthier than Mm -hmm. what what could fit in my own column but they're just they're they're great people and they're
1: amazing writers and it's like wow that's good How would you say that your reading life has changed since you became a published author, or even since you started the New York times column? I mean, since, since
2: I started on the column, I'm just reading a lot more contemporary crime fiction. Again, I had sort of stepped away from it for a few years, partly because Mm -hmm. I needed a break, partly because I needed to be reading books that related to the ones that I was working on, partly because I was a little more immersed in, reading nonfiction and still am. And I think ultimately comes down to just having as wide a reading diet. And this is where my ability to read fast is also helpful because (laughs) it's, I I, I'm glad I, I can do that because I want to be able to not only read widely, but also read as much of the genre that I can, because then I feel like I have a much more informed opinion about what's going on or what's working or what isn't. But I also feel like as an author, I read with a lot more compassion and generosity, like having this review gig now, as opposed to when I first started reviewing books in say 2003, 2004, it's not just age. It's not just wisdom. It's just more experience. It's many more books that I've read that I can draw on for comparison and for understanding. Also having edited anthologies of crime fiction Just understanding the history of it and who gets elevated and who gets overlooked, who gets neglected and who gets exalted. So these are all questions that I think a lot about and that inform the way that I read contemporary crime books, be they fiction or nonfiction.
0: That's a great way of putting it. I think we've Mm -hmm. been thinking more deliberately about that as well after reading books like yours and after yeah. just understanding where we are in the world and it makes for a richer experience. Mm-hmm.
2: I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you think um, across all the reading that you've done recent past, whatever, do you think that there's a book or an author that everyone should read?
2: I mean, I will always recommend Dorothy B Hughes is in a lonely place because mm. it's my favorite crime novel of all time. Um, it's collected in women crime writers I mean, it was always going to be in there, but I I just remember making a particularly passionate argument for it being in there. It was published in 1947. It became the basis for the 1950 film starring Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. But the film is quite different because Bogart's character also named Dick Steele, he's accused of murder, but he didn't, it's, you know, it's not clear until the very end. There's there's a real question of, but most likely, it's like he didn't do it, and there, are, you know, issues of trauma and frankly PTSD that are happening in the film. But in the book, Dix is a killer, <laughs> and he is responsible for the de- the murders of multiple women. But because we're in his head in the third person, we we know we as the reader know much more about what's going on than he does. And I love oh, the way that wow. Hughes does this. And also that even in the midst of his incredibly blinkered psychopathic perspective, the w- women characters, especially his love interest, the actress, Laurel Gray, and um, the, um, Sylvia, the wife of the detective who is Dix's army buddy who is investigating the murders. They just, they're the, they're the, they're the characters who shine and they come through in the end and they're the real heroines. And so there is so much going on not just from a character standpoint but also from a post World War II toxic masculinity men coming back and not knowing their place in the world. Mm-hmm. And there it, it's to me it's just it's the inflection point for everything about crime fiction in America in particular. And it's oh. like if you read that you understand everything. It's yeah, I would say it's a skeleton key to understanding American crime fiction. Wow,
0: wow. Well, we're going to be buying some books after this. Yeah, you? I know. Uh-huh. <laughs> that one's also New York Review
2: Books Classics, and Megan
1: Abbott wrote the intro for that, oh, so oh, wow. everything kind of connects. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Well, at the end of our podcast, we always talk about some pop culture thing we're obsessed with, whether that's music, movie, TV show, podcast. Is do you have a current pop culture obsession?
2: Oh, gosh, I think I feel like I'm so middle aged that what is pop culture to me
1: these days. <laughs> um, but I
2: do try to stay ahead on true crime podcasts. It, I, I said this in a column and it's still true. It's like I feel like that's an occupational hazard for me. Um, I know that we're recording on Monday, May 3rd and on Tuesday, May 4th is the last episode of The Line, which is a podcast that's hosted and produced by Dan Taberski if you know his name, it's because he's responsible for the podcast, missing Richard Simmons and headlong oh, yeah. and running from cops, which I adored. So the line, which is about the court martial trial of Eddie Gallagher. I really did not think I was going to be int- into this at all. And it's a companion podcast to the this d- documentary that Alex Gibney oversaw, but it's great because he does the work and it's so well-written and it had a, a legitimate Perry Mason style twist in the most recent episode. And now I'm like, I want to know what's going on in, in the last episode. <laughs> so it's supremely well-structured. And I, I so admired that because the problem with a lot of true crime podcasts is that it's either they're just kind of lazy and they don't do the work or they're exploitative or they, or they just aren't well-written. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm picky and I think it's good to be picky. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad for this one. Um, I also just, you know, perennials are you're wrong about, which is co-hosted by uh, Sarah Marshall that. and Michael Hobbs. Yes. They, just dropped, they just dropped an episode today about the Dixie chicks. And it's yes. and, yeah, it's super, super well done. And then another one that I enjoy for storytelling purposes is called Crimes of the Centuries. It's hosted by Amber Hunt, who, at her day job, she does Accused, which is a great oh, sort of yeah. long-form podcast. But because of the pandemic, I, they couldn't really work on that. So she, from home, has been doing the storytelling podcast of once-famous crimes. And she's a great researcher, and she's a she's good structurally, and she is you know, has a wonderful narrative. And I, I enjoy that. It's like the first thing that I listen to on Monday mornings now. Hmm. So. Oh, cool.
0: Do you get into much um, docu-series, you know, HBO kind of documentaries, long shows, that kind of stuff, or do you prefer podcasts? It's funny.
2: I thought that with the pandemic, I'd be watching more TV. Mm-hmm. I watched a lot less TV. Really? <laughs> I think it's because when I'm, watching something it's almost like it's too much for my brain i can handle text and audio pretty well but add the visuals and it's almost like it does something to my brain so i feel like with it's very easy for me to get overwhelmed watching Mm -hmm. television and then i just feel like i get distracted a little bit more Mm -hmm. so i haven't but that doesn't mean i don't rule it out like i still want to watch Alan versus Pharaoh. I still want to watch mm-hmm. a whole host of docu-series and I will just try to at some point in some future, but also if I don't, that's okay too.
0: Totally. Okay.
2: And I, I can get that.
0: Like some of the mm-hmm. things that we've watched because there's the visual and the audio, it's a lot. There's a yeah. lot happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Although I did, I will fully disclose that I watched everything on the PDF. That was with the unspeakable acts. Okay. <laughs> the entire list. every time we got something done I was like here's another one here's another one we should keep going. Oh, <laughs> that's
2: well that's why it was there so it was, yeah it wasn't it was- just that you had the uh, baker's dozen of pieces but also much more supplemental books and articles and stuff to watch and stuff to listen to yeah it so was, that's another actually- thing it's just that if it's if it's in the back matter of unspeakable acts then I definitely endorse it Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, it was really, it was a really good supplement because it went all those things went with something in there. You know, it reminded me of that. And I think the what the viewing experience was better for it. I think yeah. if I'd watched some of those things separate, I might not have gotten the same kind of feeling out of it. So
0: yeah. I, yeah. I didn't realize there was a syllabus in that too, Erin. Oh my God. <laughs> I know.
1: I know. I've been working my way through it. <laughs> I've been Excellent. sliding those in on the podcast, and you just haven't noticed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sneaky! You've been trying to get a Sarah's attention this whole time. Yeah, I, like I get I'm it. Just now. watching everything. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, those were our questions, Sarah. Thank you so much for spending some time with us, for yes. telling us what you've been thinking about and reading, and and some of your experiences. We so really enjoyed it.
2: I'm so grateful that you asked me to be on and that you're reading my work so closely and just thank you both like you're the platonic ideal of what readers ought to be and it's not just in terms of my work but like how you talk about books generally on the podcast it's so great to see and wonderful to hear i look forward to what your thoughts are in future episodes uh, with books that you're looking forward to so yeah
0: Uh, aaron a delight a delight yes so uh, i mean that happened we talked to sarah Weinman. Mm -hmm. your rare three pete recommendation Mm -hmm. and uh how do you feel right now i feel elated okay i still am riding high of that i Uh will for the entire
1: probably year i was gonna say month but i'm just gonna give it a good year Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: yeah that's good yeah
1: um I also, one of the things that I took from that is that I desperately want my kids to be like her. (laughs) Because her coming to the table and just talking about murder.
0: I think it would make you the happiest you've ever been as a mom. Yes. Yeah. Success. (laughs)
1: Other people, that might be a red flag for me. Success.
0: It also felt good because I don't know about you, but I remember doing stuff like that as a yes. kid. And so it was like, oh that yeah, that's awesome. That tracks. But you know, our parents didn't commit us right away. Right. At that point. You yeah.
1: Know. yeah. Yeah. Kudos to them. So for, good
0: job. <laughs> you know, letting that grow. <laughs> I uh and maybe you knew this because you are a big Sarah Weinman fan. I didn't know she had a graduate degree in forensic science that she had thoughts of going into That scientific field and instead writing got its grips in her. I love it. And it I have to
1: say that having that knowledge now makes a lot of sense. Because she has such a ability to tell the story from so many angles, Mm -hmm. which is what makes crime writing great is not just telling the story. You know, people I think mistake crime writing or even whether it's fiction or nonfiction is oh you just tell the story and the story is the thing that gets the readers it's not especially now because that market is starting to get so much more popular it can almost be flooded yeah and i think really true great crime writing is being able to look at it from so many angles to make the reader feel involved Mm -hmm. on whatever level and knowing that she has that background just makes so much sense yeah yeah
0: um, did you know that she was the crime book reviewer at New York Times? Well, I did only because I follow her on social media. So okay. when she announced it, I did yeah. I did know that. See, yeah. I should have known that you know yeah. that because yeah. I imagine you, you stalk her in the way that we are allowed to stalk people yes. in, in yeah. 2021. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Not but in that, any like creepy way, <laughs> just in like, a, hey, is a new book coming out? Kind right, of not
0: in a true yeah. crime way, but in a like, I love you and I want to see what you're doing exactly. these days. Yes. yes, absolutely. Excellent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That seems like an area well-suited to her.
1: Yeah. 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 I, it's perfect. And mm-hmm. who better to be recommending them, in my opinion, Exactly, or reviewing them? Yeah. I, it was great for me that she was excited about the 3 Yeah, of recommendations. Yes.
0: Because that's a rare honor. It is a rare honor. And she took that honor in the way she should have taken it, with great delicacy and with acknowledging... <laughs> Your love. Yes. It was wonderful. Took it as the compliment it is meant to be. <laughs> I like that, you know, when we were asking her about podca- or uh, pop culture, excuse me, um, you know, she mentioned true crime podcasts, uh, especially the fact that she's very picky about them. I also was intrigued by the fact that she doesn't really like, I don't know if I want to say don- doesn't like, but, you know, uh, TV, mm-hmm. docuseries, that kind of stuff. Sometimes it can be too much, which I totally understand. Sometimes there are, mm-hmm. you know... A little too much gore There's a little too much You know Salaciousness And it was intriguing To hear that sometimes Even a Crime writer Such as herself Has yeah. to protect Her own Sort of You know mm mm-hmm well-being
1: well and her book uh, unspeakable acts which i think i mentioned in the episode comes with a whole resource list of yes. other things that she thinks are terrific like other books podcasts movies series. Yeah, you completed the syllabus i did mm-hmm. and i would i would say that that's a great place especially for people who do feel that way like i don't just want the run-of-the-mill kind of gory yeah, or maybe it's yeah. too much i mean the stuff that she put in there really added to what you read in that book or really made you think about something different. I really enjoyed everything that I took from that. So she definitely has a keen eye, which is yet another reason why she's yeah. in a perfect position at New York
0: Times, for sure. Excellent. And again, Erin, she praised us as the ultimate readers. Yeah. And I mean, you are obviously a, a much bigger fan than I, just because you've read more of yeah. her. Yeah. Even uh, I myself was just like, Oh. Yeah. I feel good. I yeah. feel validated. I need to just remember that. Like, we need a sound by it for it that we, mm-hmm. you know, send ourselves every once in a while. Like, mm-hmm. you know how we were sending ourselves the book smart dancing GIF over and over? Yes. We need to do a mm-hmm. clip of Sarah Weinman calling us the ultimate readers.
1: See, I think that we do because I, that the rest of that week went a little sideways for me. And yeah. I mentioned that to you multiple times. Like, the thing getting me through this yes. week is remembering <laughs> because there's nothing else I would like to be complimented more for right? than being the ultimate reader.
0: It, it is honestly validating because yeah. you know we are we have a very light tone at the beginning of our episodes, but then sometimes we get deep. If we get deep, we talk about all the different aspects <laughs> of the books, so it's good to hear. You can call me a shitty parent, but you better know <laughs> that my reading is on point. <laughs> Glad to know your priorities, and but I happy. <him>. Happy to be with you along the ride. Good,
1: good, good.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, we will be back next Wednesday with a regular weekly themed episode.
1: In the meantime, happy reading.
0: I'm up again.